Welcome to the History Guy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to stories of lesser-known historical events told by Lance Geiger, also known as the History Guy on YouTube. I'm Josh, your host, a writer for the channel and eldest son of the History Guy. We tell all kinds of stories about history, from the modern era to the ancient past, so you never know what we're going to talk about next. One thing you can be sure of, it is history that deserves to be remembered. We at The History Guy are also excited to announce a new way to interact with the team and The History Guy himself at Locals.com. Join The History Guy Guild for your one-stop location to chat with other history fans, get updates on the team, and more. You can join for free or pay as little as $5 a month to get access to live chats with The History Guy, looks behind the scenes, early access to ad-free videos, and more. Find us at thehistoryguyguild.locals.com. We look forward to seeing you there. On today's episode, the History Guy tells two stories of Alexander the Great. First, he tells the story of possibly the most challenging siege of Alexander's military career, the siege of the island city of Tyre. Then he tells the story of Alexander's greatest defeat, when his own men mutinied on the banks of an Asian river. Without further ado, let me introduce the History Guy. Alexander the Great is considered one of the greatest generals in human history, so much so that his strategies are still studied in military academies today more than 2300 years after his death. Famous for never having lost a battle, his conquest created one of the largest empires in antiquity. But in 332 BC, Alexander faced a unique challenge against the massive walls of the Phoenician city-state of Tyre. The Siege of Tyre challenged Alexander in ways that none of his other battles did and represented the tenacity and brilliance of one of history's most influential figures. Alexander the Great, or Alexander III of Macedon, became King of Macedon at the age of just 20, after his father was assassinated by a member of his own guard. As King, Alexander took charge of his father's plan to lead a Panhellenic alliance in an invasion of their longtime foe, the Greek Achaemenid Empire of Persia. Alexander quickly proved himself to be a brilliant commander. He delivered a decisive defeat to a large Persian and Greek mercenary army at the Battle of the Granicus River in 334. He was received with cheer from Greek cities in Ionia, modern-day Turkey, and then, despite being greatly outnumbered, he defeated Darius, the Persian king, routing his army at the Battle of Issus in 333. It was the first time in history that the Persians had been defeated with the king on the field. Alexander marched across Persian lands almost without pause for two years, accepting the surrender of cities and basking in an aura of invincibility. Many of the cities in Ionia and Syria had been ill-treated under Persian leadership and had recent histories of revolt. By 332, there was only one port friendly to Persia left in the Mediterranean, the heavily fortified island city of Tyre. Alexander's campaign to take the city would become the longest and most complicated siege of his career. Robin Lane Fox, in Alexander Biography, said of the coming siege that, with a characteristic leap forward to meet a challenge, Alexander was now to show for the first time that genius that singles him out in military history. The city of Tyre was at the time the largest and most important city in Phoenicia, and it had prospered under Persia. Without a navy to challenge Persian dominance of the sea, Alexander's strategy had been to fight the navy from shore by capturing its ports and safe havens. The strategy was finally proving to be effective, but in order to make it decisive, he needed to capture all of the Persian-friendly ports on the coast. Though he meant to invade Egypt next, he did not want to leave a base of Persian operations in his rear, where it could threaten, harry, and assault his communication lines. But taking Tyre was not going to be easy. 
According to Herodotus, Tyre had been founded in 2750 BC on the mainland, but by 332, New Tyre had moved to an island a kilometer away from the coast, and the Tyrians had built walls that extended right up to the water. The Macedonians said the walls rose as much as 150 feet. It had two excellent natural harbors on the north and south side of the island, and had a large fleet at its disposal. It was famous both for the deep purple dye it produced, and as the mother city of many colonies in the Mediterranean, including Carthage, which had promised to send aid to its progenitor. Alexander was used to cities capitulating to him almost without a fight, so he was surprised when the Tyrians rebuffed the envoy he sent to negotiate a peace. Alexander's envoy had asked for permission for Alexander to visit the city, and that Alexander be allowed to make a sacrifice at the temple to their god Melkart, whom Alexander identified with his claimed ancestor, Heracles. Realizing this was an attempt to infiltrate the city, instead the city sent a reply that insisted that their city was neutral in the war, and that allowing Alexander to come to the city would mean they were recognizing him as king. The Tyrians had good reason to believe their walls would hold. In the early 6th century BC, the island fortress had withstood a siege from the king of Babylon for 13 years. Angry at being snubbed, Alexander sought a way to take the city, suggesting his engineers build a causeway that his army could use to attack the city. But his engineers had misgivings about their ability to build his suggested causeway, or mole as they called it, across a kilometer of ocean, and without a navy the city seemed beyond their reach. His soldiers were so uncertain of success that Alexander tried to steal their resolve by telling them that he had had a dream in which Heracles had invited him into the city. Even so, Alexander swallowed his pride and sent peace envoys once more to propose an alliance. This time Tyre was more clear. They killed the envoys and threw their bodies over the wall. Alexander was left with no choice but to build the causeway. In looking for a feasible means of building the land bridge, his men identified a sandbar that ran about a half mile towards the island. The relatively shallow water eased the work for Alexander's engineers considerably. Still, the causeway itself was a massive undertaking, as were his innovations to siegecraft. The Greeks in general did not have great walls around their cities or use heavy siege equipment. Siegecraft in the ancient world was an arms race between siege technique and city defenses. The Tyrians had used arrow catapults, originally invented by Syracusian king Dionysus I, but Alexander had an advantage thanks to his father's patronage of engineers. Using the newfound powers of a torsion spring, they had created stone-throwing catapults that were effective at 400 yards, twice the distance of the Tyrian catapults, and could damage a wall at 150 yards. The work on the bridge was slow going. Alexander's men demolished the remains of the city on the coast, using its stone and masonry to build the bridge and taking wood from forests in Lebanon. As they did so, they faced the constant harrying of the Tyrian navy. Once the bridge sat across most of the channel, Alexander ordered his men to build two great siege towers that would overlook the walls and would allow his catapults to batter the walls and defenders. Like the catapults, Alexander's towers were magnificent. They left space for archers and battering rams on as many as 20 levels, with drawbridges on each level. They were coated with lime and sheepskin to keep off enemy missiles, and soldier and machine both were protected with metal shields. Alexander had his engineers mount his stone-throwing catapults on top. At first, the Tyrians laughed at Alexander's plans. They shouted at the workers and they harassed them from their warships, thinking Alexander mad for challenging the god of the sea. Alexander wasn't bothered, his officers describing him explaining the steps to his workers in person, encouraging them and giving rewards of money to his best workers. As the causeway grew nearer, the Tyrians began to take their threat more seriously. Once the first two towers were in place to shoot back, they came up with their own brilliant counterstroke. The Tyrians took a transport and filled it with dry timber and other flammable material, and then added pitch and sulfur. 
Their most brilliant addition to the fire ship was to fix cauldrons of fuel to the ship's masts, which would pour as the ship burned to fan the flames. They weighed down the stern so that the prow of the ship sat above the water, and using triremes to tow it, they ran it towards the causeway, set it alight, and then got clear. The fire ship crashed into Alexander's bridge and set fire to his towers. Tyrian skiffs landed to destroy any other siege equipment, while the Tyrian ships attacked the Macedonian defenders. The move was a complete success. Looking at the situation somewhat grimly, Alexander ordered that the causeway be widened and that more towers and equipment be built. But despite his engineering feats, it was becoming clear that Tyre would not fall if Alexander did not have a navy. But Alexander's fortunes soon turned. He received news that the Persian fleets were returning home, and since most of their home cities now owed allegiance to Alexander, he had reason to believe that those crews would soon serve him. On reaching the city, Alexander found that the kings of Arad and Byblos had deserted the Persians and brought him ships. Sidon's ships joined them, as well as ships from Rhodes. Another 120 ships appeared shortly from Cyprus, a Greek-leaning but until recently Persian-oriented island. Now Alexander had three times as many ships as Tyre, as well as 4,000 reinforcements that had arrived from Greece. When Alexander returned with his fleet, he found his causeway damaged by a gale and the Tyrian ports blockaded by a population that was getting ready for a prolonged siege. But unwilling to wait to starve the city out, he brought together engineers from Cyprus, from Phoenicia, and from Greece. One of the first ideas they came up with was to lash pairs of the solar ships together and suspend between them a battering ram covered with roofs of hide, allowing the Phoenician ships to reach the walls and batter them as if they were on dry land. Meanwhile, Alexander was building his largest towers yet, possibly the largest ever built, and he installed his stone-throwing catapults on ships to batter the walls. As Alexander doubled down on the siege, both sides devoted themselves to outthinking the other. Tyre dropped enormous boulders into the water near the walls to prevent Alexander's ships from getting close enough to attack the walls. Alexander began towing the rocks onto the ships and firing them out of the catapults. But the Tyrians cut the ropes of the ship's anchors, first with armored ships and then having soldiers swim out to do so until Alexander had the ropes replaced with metal chains. The Tyrians used pole axes to cut the ropes by which the rams were swung and drop rocks and flames on them from above. To defend against the constant bombardment, the Tyrians hung leather skins stuffed with seaweed over the walls and used huge marble wheels, still not fully understood by history, that spun and deflected the missiles. Alexander's towers were near enough now to present a serious threat to Tyrian soldiers on the walls, but they weren't invincible. Tyrians fitted tridents to long ropes and used them to harpoon Greek soldiers and drag them off. Those who attempted to use the drawbridges to get nearer could be caught in fishing nets and flung into the rocks below, and workers at the foot of the wall were showered with red-hot sand that poured inside their body armor. The siege dragged on, with the situation essentially unchanged, as the two sides beated each other from April until July. Though much of the Persian fleet had been subdued, a number of Persian admirals still threatened Alexander's conquests and refused to turn back on the island or consider a truce, though his army was becoming restless at the lack of success. After an offer of truce was sent by Darius, Parmenion is said to have commented, If I were Alexander, I would accept the truce and end the war without further risk. So would I, Alexander replied, if I were Parmenion. The waiting game was getting desperate for everyone. The Macedonian fleet had taken to putting their ships on the shore of the island at the ends of the protected harbors, and the Tyrians took this opportunity for a daring attack, at this point possibly inspired by hunger after the grueling seven-month siege. While the Cypriot crews near the northern harbor had beached their ships and were eating lunch, the Tyrians sent 13 of their fastest ships out to attack. Before the crews could react, the Tyrians had smashed three of the great warships. 
Unfortunately for the Tyrians, Alexander was in the southern harbor with the crews of some of his ships, and not back on the mainland at his tent, where he usually lunched. Taking his ships to the north harbor, he led the attack on the Tyrian ships, and destroyed them. Not a man to rest on his laurels, Alexander put together an inspired and many-faceted attack that meant to finally finish the siege he had begun so many months earlier. He ordered his battering ships to attack weak points in the wall, had ships with archers and catapults circle the city to distract the enemy, while his fleet was to attack both harbors simultaneously. His engineers had also devised new drawbridges that allowed more soldiers to disembark at once. The most promising breach was on the extreme south side of the island, and it was here that the Macedonians concentrated their infantry. Alexander led the second way behind the captain, Adamatus, who was killed as he became the first to mount the wall. Alexander led his men into the city. The Tyrians made a spirited defense, but even a desperate stand near the shrine of the city's founder could not stop Alexander. After his conquest, Alexander exacted a steep penalty on the people of Tyre for defying him. 8,000 Tyrian citizens were slaughtered outright. Another 2,000 were crucified on its beaches. 30,000 and most of the rest of the population were sold into slavery. Alexander was only merciful to the few who had managed to seek refuge in temples and shrines. Among them, Zemachus, the king of Tyre, whom Alexander allowed to live and continue to be king, although Alexander left his own men to populate and garrison the city. The siege of Tyre also changed the geography of the coast. Today's Tyre is no longer an island, as silt and sand has built along Alexander's causeway, creating a land bridge that has buried the southern harbor and created an artificial isthmus. Later the same year, Alexander used many of the siege tactics that he'd learned at Tyre to defeat the fortified city of Gaza in just two months. Alexander had stranded the Persian fleets and left his army open to attack one of the Persian Empire's greatest kingdoms, Egypt. The siege of Tyre, one of the most complex battles of the ancient world, well demonstrated the ingenuity, the tenacity, and the brutality of one of history's greatest generals. Now's the part of the episode where we get to chat with the history guy. A little bit about what we just heard, what we're going to hear, and some behind-the-scenes stuff that you only get to hear about on the podcast. So, I mean, as you mentioned in this episode, and in the, the one we'll listen to later, Alexander is probably one of the most famous people in history. Uh, it's yeah. it's hard, yeah. hard to imagine. There aren't a whole lot of people that, you know, have been known throughout history more i mean everyone people have been looking up to oh, alexander yeah. I mean, since since antiquity yeah, yeah he is still he's still remembered yeah and yet i you know it's it's amazing how much he did and how much there was to do because i this story mm -hmm. i think people don't know really that much about the details of a lot of alexander's mm -hmm. life they know about you know he was so young and he captured this you know all of asia or this huge chunk of asia but they didn't uh uh, we don't know all the all the very very grainy details and he really has a very interesting life though of course we're working on uh, really really ancient sources we are yeah, yeah. And, and those and a lot of those sources were written 100 years hundreds yeah. of years after and and so i mean you can only with ancient you can only do so much to yeah. understand what you can but the siege of tyre what's uh, really interesting there's a lot of really interesting about it but it really shows his his uh, strategic and tactical acumen yeah and this this idea that they were you know they were tit for tatting on figuring out how to you know he came up with the big uh, the big siege towers and so they come up with a fire ship and yeah. uh, the, the 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 it really is uh, you know you're placing really the best minds of the time against each other yeah. in a chess game and that's, uh, you know, a chess game, though, I, you have to say about Tyre, they were always going to lose. I mean, eventually uh, he was going to overwhelm them. 
but I mean, it is, it really shows, you know, his, his brilliance, which yeah. I mean, you don't necessarily, you don't necessarily understand why he was Alexander the Great. This is why he was Alexander yeah. the Great, because he didn't give up in face of the odds and he came up with ways to do things that no one had ever thought of before. So yeah. that this city that thought for sure that it was invulnerable was, was absolutely always going to lose this fight. He's, I mean, he has an incredible tenacity, no matter, no matter what mm -hmm. the Tyrians threw at him, he was like, I, I can... <laughs> We'll just well, keep his going. ability to keep his army motivated. You yeah. Know, when, they're, when they're bored, they're exhausted, when they're seeing these things, you know, the way that they were killing some of them, you know, the guys climbing up the ladder, they're catching them in fishing nets and, and throwing them to the rocks below <laughs> or dumping sand on oh, them, yeah. you know, like burning hot sand that goes inside your armor. You can see why his army might start to say, hey, you know, why are we doing this? Yeah, it's the city and really. he manages to keep them motivated until he, you know, finally overthrows the city. And you, I mean... It's hard to know. Ty Tyre claims that, you know, they, they were neutral. And I don't know if Tyre would have, you know, tried to help the the Persian Empire regain its power. But I think they had to know that uh, Alexander wasn't that friendly to him. I mean, <laughs> he, yeah. he, he wanted to change their change what was going on there. Uh, so I understand why he was I like, I can't. I don't think that they were neutral in any way. No. I think he was right. He couldn't leave them in his rear. I think it's probably uh, true. And, I mean, but I mean, they were trying to, you know, make this argument, you know, just don't bother with us. Uh, and because uh, they, they, I mean, their whole goal was simply to uh, build a hard point hard enough that it, it wouldn't feel like it was worth attacking. Yeah. So I think that's probably where that argument comes from. But I mean, it, it had to be terrible in the ancient world because Tyre was an example of this, but it also happened with the Mongol invasions yeah. and, and uh, the uh, Minahid invasions, and etc. If you had a nice walled protected city, uh, you had to think, do I want to defend it? Because if I fail, they're going to use me as an example to get other cities to give up. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, I mean, you, you can put all your effort into your city walls uh, and then you realize that because you have city walls means that, you know, when they're done, they're going to, you know, they're going to cast your kids off the walls and rape your wives before they kill them and sell you into slavery yeah. if they don't kill you. They crucified <laughs> thousands of them. And I mean, that was very... Yeah, I mean, they're, they're going to make an example of you because what he wants to do is the next city that he comes to says, well, look at them. And they're going to be like, okay, we're friends now. Yeah. Uh, and so, so it's there was a risk to what they did. And you know, I think they were simply trying to say this, I'm not worth attacking. This, yeah. We are too, this is going to be too much effort for you to attack. Uh, and it, that didn't work with Alexander. Certainly. I mean, it had worked, what, they had a 17-year siege yeah. before that, uh, but uh, not with Alexander. It was a very impressive, I mean, they had certainly built an impressive defensive uh, with the, the walls right up against the right up against the water. Right, yeah, right into the water, yeah. And they, and they clearly were doing okay as far as uh, food and water. That doesn't seem to come into the conversation. For, but... for some period, I mean, we were talking by the end yeah. that maybe some of their acts represented desperation because maybe they were starving at yeah. that point. And I mean, there's there's only so much you can do. Uh, you know, at, at the start, though, when that started, yeah. Alexander didn't have a fleet. And so there really wasn't this ability to truly, you know, cut them off. There wasn't this ability to truly besiege them. But yeah, that fleet appeared. I mean, you know, he's the whole idea was he was capturing the the navy by land. Yeah. I mean, you know, the the fleet comes home, realizes their city belongs to Alexander. They're now we're like, I guess we're Alexander's fleet. And then then you know, pretty much at that point, Tyre is going to succumb to siege yeah. if it doesn't succumb to to uh, you know assault. I mean, yeah, they were, and Alexander clearly wasn't gonna gonna give up. <laughs> he was yep. he was in it for the long haul, but he also was. I mean, you know, some of it. Some of the stuff we see about Alexander here, this this kind of impetuousness, he was also not going to just sit there and wait 17 years. He was going to assault this place. Mm -hmm. He was going to take it. And that's, I mean, that's how we did it. And he, as in all the stories, he's always leading from the front. He's one of the mm -hmm. first guys over the walls, and he's always doing that kind of stuff. They, they actually talk about, you know, he got injured pretty badly in one of those one of those sieges, or he jumped over a wall. And that that might have been part of why he never really recovered from that as he... Uh, 
as they went to the end. Yeah. Hmm. His and I mean, there's just so much about his story that's that's incredible. Of course, uh, Tyre was a was a unique challenge. Uh, I don't think. I mean, he had plenty of other sieges, but I don't think there was ever another siege that, for one, was this difficult. Yeah, that was this. I mean, I, you know, there's there's little in the ancient world that we that we at least understand the detail of that was as incredible. I mean, yeah. this was a massive siege. Yeah. It was an extremely well prepared and defended fortification. Yeah. An extremely large and clever army that was trying to take the fortification, uh, and so it makes you know for fascinating reading, fascinating storytelling. And, uh, Absolutely. You know, I'm sure that there are still militaries that that you know use these as lessons in, in military training but i mean it's also just a good story to tell oh yeah they i mean the fa- the fact that they just kept that tit for tat that you talked about is an incredible yeah. it's an incredible story that every single time i mean they were both fighting for their lives here and mm-hmm. alexander for his reputation i think he also knew you know uh, a major defeat especially at the point that he had committed himself so completely uh could have very seriously affected you know his ability to continue a- yeah. and to hold what he had what he had gained mm-hmm those all had to be places that were thinking, you know, uh, if we if we see weakness, uh, part of his, you know, this uh, illusion of invulnerability, although called mm-hmm. an illusion, it it uh, that illusion rarely broke during his lifetime. <laughs> yeah, uh, but, but I mean, he said so. Once once you start expanding, you got to keep expanding, or what yeah. you have is going to get rested. And I mean, he understood that. Yeah. Yeah, he, you know, even after his death, it, there were all kinds of talk about what he wanted to what he wanted to go conquer next. I, uh, I I do wonder sometimes what it would have looked like, you know, him him if he was really set uh, prepared for ruling such a large empire. Well, I mean, he did pretty well. He certainly understood how to uh, put people. I mean, he used his generals, but yeah. I mean, he put loyal people who could actually run the place. True, uh, and they you know they did an extraordinary job of it. I mean, and so you know, I think. Uh, I mean, how did the Persians rule? All oh, that's of that? true. I mean, you know, it's so I, I I don't know. You know, it's hard to say what happened along him because he died young. Yeah. But I mean, he he had done a, a good job of what he'd done. But I mean, it's so many pieces in history. Uh, it works that way. You know, the king takes the place, he takes the general that defeated it and say, OK, you take this and hold this for me. And in other places in history, that general ends up turning on them. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he, you know, that never seemed to happen yeah. to Alexander. I mean, uh, he kept, kept it loyalty. It's it's hard to know because he was, I mean, he was, I mean, he was almost a god to his troops, too. Of mm-hmm. course, after his death, uh, they all were very big on his memory, but, I, you know, they didn't treat his his son very well. Uh, they, that, there was, you know, some horrible stuff there, and he was a political pawn, and I think ultimately he and the wife, uh, the son and the wife are both just killed. They just kind of disappear. Uh, they're never really a serious... Yeah, so it was all in the personality of, yeah. of Alexander. Yeah. yeah, but it would have been a lot more difficult with Alexander because he would have had to face him, and clearly he was uh, yeah. he was a difficult for them to face. Yeah, the loyalty and the reputation. Yeah. And the, yeah, yeah. But here, you know, here at the beginning, this was this was quite early into his into his conquest, and he faced. I mean, every place he went, there was always someone fighting to uh, you know to be clever. They were fighting for their lives. They were always trying to mm-hmm. trying to be this. We talk. There's uh, there's the Sogdian rock where the idea is they're like up they're up on a up on a big plateau and they're like oh we're impossible to get to and then they they've got cliffs above them and they start waving the flags and he's got a bunch of his own guys that have climbed up there and they just surrender and it's mm-hmm. it's interesting to see that kind of stuff because you wonder I mean that was that seems like oh that's a that's a brilliant piece of but in in terms of this one I feel like we're able to look at the details and see maybe more history 
because mm-hmm. a lot of Alexander's stories, of course, and we've, we've talked about this a bit, you know, just you and I, uh, there's always legend and myth attached to them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what what I think that any story, we could look at this one and we can see what kind of pieces maybe of legend and myth are attached to it, too. But mm-hmm. the fact that he struggled uh, makes it makes me feel like, you know, he was if it was all legend or myth, they wouldn't they wouldn't have told. Yeah, that. they would have mentioned the struggle. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, there's still things there was some sort of device that was used to deflect arrows and no yeah. one seems to know what it is or how it worked, except that it had some sort of spinning wheel involved. Yeah, it doesn't seem to make it doesn't really seem to make a lot of sense when I try to try to think about it. But yeah, I can't even quite visualize it. And I, no one's ever quite figured out what that is. And I mean, there are there are other ancient, you know, no one knows what oh, yeah. Greek fire was made out of either. But yeah, uh, or Roman concrete. Uh, so, I mean, uh, you know, there, there are secrets that were left in the ancient world. Of course, that would have been a closely held military secret yeah. at the time. And, you know, it didn't it didn't live through to today. No, and it was it was just uh, I don't know. I don't know if it was ever used again. But, you know, in those those initial attacks. But it's it's an incredible it's an incredible story. And it's a story that tells mm-hmm. you, you know, I think it's a really good example of why Alexander was so remembered is that he he committed to his his battles. He was always thinking ahead and you know you see this one where he was constantly trying to find some new clever way and it wasn't always Mm -hmm. just him you know he had his engineers and his but gosh it was important that he was there because you know they build the uh the mole halfway across the water and then the (laughs) they set you know he sets his siege towers on fire and his all of his soldiers are like dude like (laughs) yeah too much we can't (laughs) Uh, we worked too hard for that now it's all gone i don't want to do this anymore um, yeah, and and you know you can you can see that their hope was that if we if we just do that sort of yeah. uh, you know hit that they're going to lose their morale and go and you know that might work with some but it didn't work with Alexander. No. Although it was it was certainly you can say that they, it owed a lot to his personality because that mm-hmm. was not just you know it sounded like his men left to their own devices might not have uh, might not have kept up with that quite the way that he yeah, did. Yeah, well, would even have even tried? I yeah, it's, uh, it had to do with him. Certainly, his generals were getting ready to give up yeah. on it too, and and. Yeah, well, and they're wondering, you know, yeah. why is this such an important tactical position? And that's part of what I mean. Alexander was always uh, he was always really quite brilliant about that kind of stuff. It's the only the only defeats that they talk about his army having, uh, you know, he's not in command, and they like there's that we which there are lots more stories we could tell about his conquests that we haven't told, and even apart from the stuff like you know the Gordian knot, which. Um, I don't know how much history there is to that at all, <laughs> or if it's uh, if it's completely that's, myth. I think that's an allegory. Yeah, yeah there's they talk because it's always about you know how well just like in this story, it's about his clever his clever way of uh, defeating a challenge that seems impossible. But in that case, you know there was no there was no military. He's just like okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna take the the different route here, and he continued to do that. But yeah, this one that one's all allegorical. But he you know his soldiers lose some stuff in like a up in like Central Asia. He has some problems, and of course, uh, you know he he didn't live to see it. But almost all of that stuff that he conquered that was in the far far east near India mm-hmm. and stuff uh, collapsed. I mean, it collapsed almost instantly. Uh, yeah. Some of it was no, essentially collapsed. No one's been able to hold Afghanistan yeah. ever. Yeah, that's it. it I, that was stuff that had collapsed. You know, basically by the time he had reached uh, Persepolis, finally uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, again, and was back in you know back in the Middle East after having been there, that stuff was already slipping from his grasp. But yeah, he would have gone back probably. I, I have a hard time imagining that he would have he would have let that happen without a fight. But it was you just yeah. conquer so much yeah, so I mean, quickly. It's... Yeah, it's and some of these, you know, that, that well, I mean, that's like Afghanistan's famous for that. Yeah. It's famous for being conquered and being unconquered yeah. just as quickly. 
Magellan TV is sponsoring this episode, and they sponsor all of our podcasts. And if you've listened to the podcast, you know that what we like to do is talk about what we've been watching on Magellan TV lately. And so what have you been watching on Magellan TV? That's, you know, I watched one on, uh, it's just called Ivan the Terrible, and it's about Ivan the Terrible. And I really didn't, hadn't known all that much about Ivan the Terrible. Uh, I mean, and, and of course, it's such an important part of Russian history, and, and especially that you know, Ivan died without heir, and that led to you know, 200 years of really mess in Russia that, you know, this kind of distinguished Russia from the rest of Europe. So uh, it is, there's a lot of great detail in it. It tells me a lot more about him than I realized. It talks a lot about his childhood, which might explain something of how he behaved as an adult. Uh, you know, like anything else on Magellan TV, it was really fascinating. It was a great piece of history. Uh, and, it, and it gave me uh, detail I didn't know about uh, as someone who, who calls himself the history guy. Such an incredible piece of Russian history. But you know, the, I mean, the terrible was a misnomer. It was a mistranslation. It was yeah. uh, something that would have, really would have been Ivan the Strict. Uh, but there were terrible things that he did, too. And there's some explanation for that. I mean, some people literally ask, was he a psychopath? Was he a serial killer? You know, why did he enjoy torture? And it, it talks to that, some of it, both the high and the low. I mean, why he's considered, to some extent, a hero and a great person and why he's not. And historiography, how it's been reinterpreted. His story has been reinterpreted with time, especially its connection to Stalin. Yeah. So it was really, uh, it was a great use of my time. It was really fascinating. He is a very interesting historical character, uh, somewhat like Alexander. He's, I mean, he was just larger than life and very important to uh, the story of his people. Uh, and uh, a, a complex person. Uh, that uh, you know, you can't simply you know describe him. It's someone you have to really understand the complex part. So I love about Magellan TV documentaries. Almost anything. Every time you watch one, there's something you really learn. What have you been watching recently on Magellan TV? So you know, we were we were doing Alexander, and so I was I was thinking about that kind of stuff. That's kind of was on my mind. And so what I watched actually was it's a part of a series called Empire Builders, and they've got a, a number of of episodes that talk about various different people. But the one I watched was about the ancient Greeks. And it talked about the Minoans and the Mycenaeans and then up until the, the period of the Greek city-states. And it's it's always been a really interesting period of history to me. We, we know almost nothing about the Minoans. Mm-hmm. And what we do know has a lot to do with uh, with legend and stuff like it, the, the idea of King Minos and the, the, the Minotaur. Uh, but, mm-hmm. it, you know... That's all stuff that we know that we have, they might have no connection at all to history. It might have some interesting connections to history. We don't really know. But we we found a, there's a big palace, essentially, and some more stuff on Crete where the Minoans were. And mm-hmm. it's incredible what, what we have found. But we haven't, uh, we haven't. Yeah, the, the technology yeah. there. Yeah, it's extraordinary. Yeah, it's, it's a really, really interesting piece. They were more advanced than we expected them to be. We still haven't translated their text deciphered linear a we don't we don't know about it so there is some there is some writing from them but we we don't know how to read it and i think that's you know that's a really interesting thing and at some point hopefully we will be able to decipher that and kind of learn what uh, learn what they had to say those will be some true voices from the past and then and then of course it works through all these these other parts of uh, really cool greek history because of course the mycenaeans were were that's that's the time of the of troy and that's this is what homer was writing about all just this is a really interesting part of the world at this time and it has had i mean an enormous impact on how the world has continued to exist and not just in europe uh, but in you know in north africa and in the middle east and at the time of alexander they went clear all the way to india and there's there's been a stamp of greek culture you know that has descended even from these earliest greek Greek cultures and that that's that's really left to stamp upon the world and it's it's something that's really interesting for us to take a look at and of course Magellan 
is a really, really cool place, and you're always able to find really, really cool stuff to watch. There's never anything there that, I, that I'm like, ah, oh, that's just not interesting. Yeah, that's. I mean, we both watched history this time. That's that's unique because usually yeah. one of us is doing science or crime or something like that. There's so many things to see on Magellan TV, thousands of videos. 40 hours of new videos are added every week. And, of course, if you are a listener or watcher of The History Guy, you can always go to try.magellantv.com slash historyguy where we will always have a deal for you, sometimes a free month or a deal on an annual membership or even a documentary that you can watch for free. Again, that's try.magellantv.com slash historyguy. Next up, the History Guy tells the story of Alexander's greatest defeat, the mutiny on the Hyphasis. Stay tuned after the episode to hear us chat a little more with the History Guy. Alexander the Great is considered one of the greatest generals of all times. He died at just the age of 32, but not before leading his armies all the way from Greece to India. He defeated army after army in a string of victories and never lost a battle in which he was in command. But that doesn't mean he always got his way. Alexander wasn't just leading his fellow Macedonians, he was leading an army that was also made up of other Greeks, Persians, Scythians, Indians, and others, and he, he always tried to merge his country's culture with the culture of his conquered territories, but in the end, it was his relationship with his Macedonian soldiers that would determine the limits of Alexander's empire. It is history that deserves to be remembered. Alexander began his invasion of the Achaemenid Persian Empire in 334 BC, when it was only 22 years old, with an army of more than 50,000 soldiers and a determination to fight. When he first arrived on the shores of Anatolia, modern-day Turkey, he threw a spear in the soil, declared that he accepted Asia as a gift from the gods. Only four years later, Darius III, king of Persia, was dead, and Alexander declared himself Lord of Asia. Alexander now ruled an enormous empire, but he wasn't finished yet. He continued east to conquer the rest of the former Persian territory. Ultimately, he would conquer some or all of modern Afghanistan, Turkmenistan, Pakistan, India, and more. He augmented his army with local soldiers, recruiting from Persia and other conquered lands, while having Macedonian units sent from his homeland. Alexander's most elite and important unit was the one he led himself, a unit of heavy cavalry called the Companions. The Companions were mostly wealthy men who could support and maintain armor and horses. They had the best armor, the best weapons, and in battle they usually fought on the right wing of the army, a position of honor in Hellenic armies. A particularly galling move to his Macedonian brethren was when he began accepting Persians into the companion cavalry. Ultimately, hundreds of Persians would serve as companions. This was not the only point of contention between Alexander and his lieutenants. After declaring himself Lord of Asia, Alexander took on Persian ways of dress, which the Greeks thought were barbarous and effeminate. Dressing like a Persian was, however, a minor offense. More serious was his attempt to introduce the Persian practice of proskynesis. Historian Herodotus described the ritual with an example. When one man meets another on the road, it's easy to see if the two are equals, for if they are, they kiss each other on the lips without speaking. If the difference in rank is small, the cheek is kissed. If it is great, the humbler bows and does obeisance to the other. In Achaemenid Persia, the emperor was the only person that all the subjects had to prostrate themselves before. According to Alexander's personal historian, Callisthenes, the Greeks believed that there were separate ways to honor mortals and gods, and protestration was something reserved for the honor of gods. It was anathema to the Greeks, Callisthenes says, because they are men most devoted to freedom. Callisthenes was the leader of a group that considered this a serious issue. 
possibly sacrilegious effort for people to venerate him as a god. Other scholars say that veneration wasn't as large an issue as the idea that Macedonian soldiers would be considered equal to Persians as a part of a policy of cultural fusion. The discontent among his men was serious enough that during his campaign in Afghanistan, a plot for his assassination was uncovered. A companion commander, Philotus, was accused of not warning Alexander. He was tried and killed. Alexander then had Philotus's father, Alexander's Strategos, assassinated to prevent any possible retribution. A second plot was uncovered later, and Alexander's historian Callisthenes was implicated and killed in connection with it. It's been suggested Callisthenes was no part of the plot itself, but was instead killed for leading the opposition to Proskynesis. Ultimately, Alexander did not insist on introducing Proskynesis, thanks largely to the aversion of his homeland troops. In the winter months of 326-327 BC, Alexander led his army in a series of campaigns against clans who refused to bow to his authority. These battles were some of the most costly of all his campaigns, but he wasn't done yet. On the banks of the Jalem River, which the Greeks called the Hydaspes, he faced another leader who refused to surrender, King Porus of Parava. As they faced each other across the river, the armies could size each other up, allowing the Greeks to see Porus's numerous war elephants. He had at least 85. The Greeks had faced war elephants before, such as 15 of them at the Battle of Gagamela against King Darius. Porus himself rode atop his largest elephant, and along with him came an estimated 20 to 50,000 foot soldiers and 2 to 4,000 cavalry. The Hydaspes was a deep and wide river, and Porus stood ready to repel any possible fording. Alexander searched for a better ford with his cavalry at night, while Porus's army shadowed him. Alexander found a crossing more than 20 miles upriver, and crossed the monsoon-swollen river with 6,000 on foot and 5,000 cavalry, according to Greek historian Arian. The crossing is considered one of Alexander's masterpieces of strategy. He crossed with a small part of his army, while the rest remained to face Porus, and performed many feints to distract Porus, and lulled Porus into a sense of security. By a stroke of luck, a force led by Porus's son to stop a possible crossing failed, because the storm hid the sound of Alexander's crossing. Porus moved his army to engage Alexander's smaller force, leaving only a token force behind to oppose the crossing of the rest of the Macedonian army. Though outnumbered, after vicious fighting, Porus was defeated. Alexander was impressed by Porus's valor and convinced the king to surrender and to rule his former land under Alexander. Modern historians estimate that Alexander lost a thousand men at this battle, many more than they'd lost the decisive battle of Gagamela. Alexander lost his beloved horse, Bucephalus, who had traveled with him across the whole of Asia. As Alexander continued east across his newly captured land, they traveled through the monsoon-drenched lands of northwestern India, miserable march through muddy lands. Plutarch wrote that their struggle with Porus blunted their courage and stayed their further advance into India. They reached the Bias, or Hyphasis, River. Alexander intended to cross the river, and then an even bigger river, in the Ganges. According to Plutarch, they learned that the kings of the Ganderites and Prese were awaiting them with 80,000 horsemen, 200,000 footmen, 8,000 chariots, and 6,000 war elephants, armies much larger than Porus's. Alexander's army had swelled during the intervening years to possibly as many as 120,000, enough, Alexander thought, to march straight through India, and possibly, in the poor geography of the time, the eastern sea, edge of the known world. Beyond the Bias were more ancient kingdoms, such as the Nanda Empire, which controlled most of northern India. The Greeks were especially concerned about the large forces of elephants said to be in India, though Alexander had his own force of elephants, too. Alexander allowed his men to pillage the countryside and bribe their families, which followed the army, hoping to mollify them enough to continue the march. 
He called the officers together to officially announce his plan, but they didn't respond in the way he'd hoped. The rain had soaked their clothes and rusted their armor. The Macedonians had been on a campaign for at least eight years and marched something like 11,000 miles. The Ganges was said to be the widest river yet they would have to cross. Finally, one of the officers stood to answer. This officer was Senes, a Hipparch commander of the Companion Cavalry and a veteran of 20 years. He told Alexander that the men would never agree to march against such an enemy. If Alexander wanted to continue, he would have to do it without his Macedonians. The other officers agreed. Many even shed tears as further proof. Alexander was furious. He blamed them and called them cowards and then sent them away. He held another meeting the next morning, telling his men he would not make any man go who wouldn't go willingly. They could go home if they wanted and tell their friends that they had deserted their king in the middle of the enemy. The officers still refused. Alexander retired to his tent and refused to speak to his companions for two whole days. While it is often described as a mutiny, it is perhaps better seen as a simple exhaustion. Alexander had pushed his men as far as they would go, and they could not win any more battles for him. They did not budge from their stand while Alexander sulked, and finally, Alexander brought his priests together to make sacrifices to decide if he should cross the river. But the offerings did not go in his favor. Only three years before, Alexander had crossed the river Oxus, despite poor omens, but now the disfavor of the gods was enough to dissuade him. He announced his decision to a loud shout, such as you would expect from a large and joyful multitude, and many of them wept. The later historian Arian wrote the soldiers called for many blessings on Alexander, since he had allowed himself to be defeated by them, and them alone. Afterward, he divided his army into twelve sections and ordered each to build an altar to one of the twelve Olympian gods, as thanks to those who had brought them victoriously so far. The altars were supposed to be huge, as high as the tallest towers, and broader even than towers would be. Plutarch claimed that Indian kings would still stop to offer sacrifice at the altars hundreds of years later, and at least one Greek was said to have seen them still standing 400 years after Alexander left. If they were built, they seem to have never been positively identified, and their size may have been exaggerated by later writers. He turned back from the river and any possibility of conquering India, choosing instead to return to Persia and to rethink his next plans. Senes, the brave officer who had stood up to his leader, died only a few weeks later of sickness, it was said, and he was buried as magnificently as circumstances allowed. Whether he died of natural causes or some sort of retribution for speaking out against Alexander is unknown. The mutiny on the Bias can be considered Alexander's greatest defeat. He could not convince his army to follow him any further, which was extraordinary given how far they had already followed him. It was a turning point in Alexander's life, but also in world history. We can't be sure that had he crossed the BS that he would have conquered all of India, but he at that point had a massive veteran force that had conquered everyone in front of them. It's even harder to determine what might have happened if he crossed the BS without his Macedonians. Would he have continued his conquest, or would have he died alone in a faraway land? Everything that came after his ill-fated march across the desert, his death later in Babylon, that all might have been different had he crossed that river. But in the end, even Alexander the Great could not conquer the world on his own. So in comparison to the last one, you know, this, this shows a very different mm -hmm. side of Alexander's brilliance. And that's, that's from his, uh, his military brilliance in this battle, but also his uh, cultural brilliance mm -hmm. is that he was, he understood as he conquered this enormous 
enormous new territory that he couldn't remain just Greek. And as long as he remained a stranger to these people, uh, they were never going to be able to follow him. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's an interesting, and we talk about proskinesis and stuff like that, that really kind of made him, you know, an enemy (laughs) in the eyes of, in the eyes of the other Greeks. The difficult part was that, uh, you know, he had traveled there with Greeks. They were still the core of his army and becoming less Greek, uh, you know, was meaningful to them. They did not like, uh, especially stuff like the proskinesis Mm -hmm. where they're like, you know, this isn't what you should do. Uh, This is not how you, how uh, people should behave. And it's, it is remarkable of Alexander because it's it's so easy for us to be like, ah, oh, this isn't how people should act. Mm-hmm. And I think we do that in today's world where all oh, these cultures are so strange and weird. And in the in the ancient world, it's very easy to say mm-hmm. it's just barbaric. And mm-hmm. of course, that's what the Greeks thought. The Greeks thought that uh, that Greek culture was civilized and any other culture yeah, was, was essentially. We kind of still do that today, but uh, yeah, it's true. Still somewhat. Yeah, and it, I mean, it all would have seemed just just odd traditions. But th- then again, he understood that that's what people recognize as being yeah. the representation of power, and that's what would keep them in. Line and make them see him as their king or their god king or whatever. You can understand that. Yeah. You see that a lot actually through that because you know you're going to change hands quite a lot, uh, and you're, you're yeah. going to see the same thing. These mixing of cultures and, and uh, you know the Mongols come through and then the, then the, the Muslims come through and then you get the Mughals, which are the Mongol Muslims, uh, and you know those it's all people. And you know part of it is you know there wherever you are there is actual civilization there. There's a reason people are living yeah. that way, and and uh, you know the great conquerors were uh, absorbing the the thing uh, the 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 parts of the culture from those that they had conquered uh, that would make them stronger. Yeah. You know they they talk about that that's one of the ways that you know the Roman Empire was able to grow is that whenever they ran into other cultures they were very willing to you know they didn't come in and say ah you can't worship your own gods they're just like ah you're that's just it's just another name for one of our gods. Yeah, and <laughs> and that was that was an effective way of you know allowing these people to uh, integrate without completely erasing them because as as although i mean also there's plenty of violence and stuff like that too of course but to some extent you know this this letting people know that you're a legitimate uh, power by their understandings uh, you know that's what alexander was doing mm-hmm. and it's it was brilliant of him even though it was also of course very challenging and to some extent caused caused what we, we you know what we end up seeing in yeah, this in i this mean episode. maybe to some extent i mean it, it also yeah. just got, I mean, there's a point where uh, you know you're exhausted you know, i used to have a, a professor yeah. in college uh, and his his comment on the mongols was how far can you go on a horse <laughs> and it's, it's a fair <laughs> point you know it's a point where the horse is like no nah, i'm gonna go home you know and uh I don't want to yeah, do this yeah, anymore. I, walk, I don't even yeah. know why I live now. So yeah, so uh, <laughs> I mean, it was had they simply reached the limit of where you could march a Macedonian army before the Macedonians, you know, gave up? So how much of that had to do with the fact that he was changing? How much of that had to do yeah. with the fact that they had simply gone farther than they ever imagined that they would? And it's so extraordinary because Macedon was not a large place. It was, uh, you know, no. it, was, it started out as quite a, you know, quite a backwater and ended up, you know, ruling so much of the world. And one of the one of the things that I've always found interesting today, it's very important to the Greek Greeks that, you know, yeah, that Alexander is Greek and that he's he's seen as, as a Greek person. But, you know, at the time, uh, all the Greek city states saw Macedon as like this backwater. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're like, oh, you're not really Greeks kind of thing. It was always very important to the Macedonians, on the other hand, that they were Greek. Uh, but it's an int- it's interesting how all that all that kind of stuff has has collided and combined because it, to, to the point that like met, um they call it Northern Macedonia now, you know, the country. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to, uh, Greece stood against them joining the, the, the European name, Union. With the name uh, Macedon, yeah. Yeah, because... because they were trying to, they were saying you're trying to steal our, you know, like our uh, past. <laughs> and it's it's interesting how that works, because at the time, I don't think, the Athenians would not have uh, felt all that bad saying that uh, the Macedonians we're, we're, were not, not really Greek. Greek. 
um, but but yeah, you know this. It's it's amazing how, and of course, Alexander doing all this is is how he's able to leave. You know, this stamp that we talked about before, where the Greeks are are have changed so much culture and left this this kind of Greek uh, Greekness upon half the world. Mm-hmm. And that's it's has a lot to do with how Alexander yeah, was able I mean, to that conquer things. Changed the world. You have to say that. Uh, the, yeah, the absolutely. That, that common culture across. I mean, made a massive difference. It's amazing when you when you study like a, the Islamic Golden Age, how much we we think of you know different of we have this Western conception of who these who are like philosophers and stuff are, but the the uh, the the Islamic Golden Age saw a lot of the same people as those same philosophers. They had translated, you know, they knew Aristotle and and uh, Plato and stuff like that. They knew a lot of those same people and they saw them exactly like we did. And it's 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 kind of interesting to think of them how that transferred and that has everything to do with Alexander well, the Great. To some extent, like yeah, some of that. I mean, it was saved in the Islamic world. It was lost yeah. in Europe, and, and yeah. that was only carried there because of Alexander. You're right. So I mean, so so much of what we yeah. are today had to do with him carrying that that banner everywhere. And you know, it's yeah. hard to say. Because the Persian Empire was a huge empire. I mean, so I mean, what would that have meant to the West? It's kind of hard to say, you know, if, if it had been the Persians yeah. doing that as opposed to the Greeks eventually defeating the Persians. Which is uh, it was seems totally unexpected, but of course, you know, the Greeks had surprised multiple times. Mm-hmm. They had been able to hold off the Persians, mm-hmm. uh, but that's you know, that's another. If we talk about counterfactuals, what it would have looked like if Persia had been able to conquer Greece, yeah. uh, well, and yeah, if, if they would have been able to move further yeah, into. I mean, could they have, I mean, could yeah. have turned the tide. It's hard to say, but I mean, the yeah. the empire was clearly at some point in decline there, and uh, you know, yes. not didn't have the best king that they'd ever had, and, and you know, at some point, you know, empires rise and then empires fall. They do. And Alexander just caused a, a rather dramatic mm-hmm. fall. And in some ways, I think, you know, all falls are dramatic. Uh, but this is it with some with some places, you know, when they talk about when the fall of Rome was and you can argue about it. Uh, well, it's much easier to say where the fall of Persia was yeah, because uh, Alexander consolidated that very yeah, quickly. And, and, but I mean, you know, and in terms of the, you know, the great man theory or whatever, I mean, you could simply say yeah. that this was a point at which Persia was ready to fall. And so as, as much yeah. as we want to talk about Alexander being great. Uh, and uh, you know we talked about that in the, in the last in the first bit of this too. I mean, it also might have simply been he was the one there at the time when you could exploit the weakness, yeah. and he did. And the Macedonians, I mean, you know, they did have some. They, but they were not the only ones. You know, that that's. I mean, that's 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 true. The Macedonians had changed. You know, they had changed kind of how the Greek phalanx work, and they were using the sarissas. Uh, they they had they had. Um, innovated mm-hmm. in ways that that also allowed them to be to defeat the Greeks, defeat Greeks yes. and they, they t- yeah you see that with uh, with the Spartans too is that they, they, there was a Spartan Empire and then one time yeah <laughs> the the Thebans beat them and that's essentially that was it for them and it's, sometimes that innovation is all it takes but you know that could have been ripe for that that period of innovation as well uh, it, you know and that happened with the Romans too. Uh, I mean, they yeah. essentially took the phalanx and they and they broke it into smaller units, and then you know that that changes yeah. all that it took to make the difference. Yeah, yeah, and so that kind of stuff, but changes. But it's it's amazing. I think we would be surprised the ways that history could have could have turned. Yeah. Uh, it's we get we get this kind of idea. It's it's easy to get this idea that there's an inevitability to history once you look back at it. But I, I think that it, it was always more more tenuous than we mm-hmm. want to believe and that at the time it could have swung a lot of different ways yeah, there were more turning points than we realized in this well yeah. i mean tyre was one of those and so you know yeah. certainly here one of the counterfactuals what if he crossed the river what if he'd gone into india and uh you know what if he'd gone with the uh, uh macedonians what if he'd gone without the macedonians and what all would that yeah. mean? you know we don't know it, it was truly a turning point 
Yeah. But I mean, that represented really his, his brilliance there too, and that he just realized. I mean, when when it was clear uh, that you know he wasn't going to win that argument with his army, and then he went and yeah. showed the omen, said we shouldn't cross, and he manages to keep his reputation, you know, despite the fact yeah. that he really is just faced and lost a rebellion of his own army. Yeah, when we talk about legend and myth and stuff, that's that's kind of an example of him building mm-hmm. that legend and myth, and he still retains his. You know, he has them build the great. Uh, statues and these these uh places where there are these temples and then he builds the big cities and we've, we've never found uh whatever city he named after his horse we never did learn about that we don't know where it was we've never found any ruins of it so maybe someday we'll find yeah. something about that might not have lasted very long is the, I mean, it's, <laughs> might it's, be the difficulty somewhere don't you think you know I would think so, but it's it's really interesting. But he's able to, you know, he's able to turn that around. And you're right. I mean, that's a that's a sign of his brilliance. I, I wonder. I mean, he had to think what happens if I refuse and I send the Macedonians home. Uh, they're not going to tell positive stories <laughs> necessarily about. I mean, he might be he might be sending a rebellion back home if he does mm-hmm. that, you know. And it would be awfully. Uh, awfully difficult for him to have conquered all of india and then come back and find out that you know someone else is claiming to rule the the rest rest of his empire empire. yeah Yeah. it might simply have been that's that's as far as you could stretch a supply line in the world i mean he's reaching the edge of what the persians had been able to hang on to yeah i've seen a lot of i mean i've seen a lot of arguments about whether uh the the kingdoms you know in india were that i've seen people say oh they were similar to the way the persian was and that they were there were older kingdoms that were maybe you know in decline and that maybe they would have collapsed as easily as Persian maybe they, maybe they wouldn't have uh, that battle with porus is perhaps a good example is that you know one of the reasons why it turned everyone around was that that was one of the most difficult fights he mm-hmm. had in terms of casualties and you got to think that the the rest of them are thinking you know uh, a little bit like uh, Pyrrhus is if i have another one of these victories it's going to be the end of uh-huh. me kind of thing is that how many times do you want to go battle and uh, it's easy when you're winning without very many casualties it's a lot harder when you, you're really paying, yeah, when you're paying a price for each victory. For each victory, yeah, especially when you're that far yeah. from reinforcement, yeah, 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 easy to get trapped. I mean, they talk about counterfactuals. What happens if uh, the army goes into India and just disappears? Yeah, yeah it never comes home. <laughs> never comes happened, home. Alexander's in history. So there's there's a yeah, lot Alexander of dies of in India. A lot of of you know what ifs yeah. that are involved, and especially again because it's ancient, and so we don't know the whole story of how something would happen. Uh, and no. so what we get is the legend that was, you know, told by, you know, people who had mm-hmm. reason to exploit the legend. And so it's all, you know, it's an interesting yeah. story, you know, just like Alexander's body, which, you know, went missing at some point and no one yeah. knows what. I mean, it's, it, it leaves you filled with wonder at who this person really was and how much of what we yeah. understand of him is real. Uh, but again, like the story of Tyre, this, this rings true. It rings human. Yeah, that that's what could have happened to this empire. There's a lot of belief, especially apparently like in nationalist Indian circles, that Alexander didn't actually defeat Porus and that he was defeated by Porus. And that's and that which essentially relies on this this concept of why wouldn't he have kept going? I mean, you know, we just told the story of why he wouldn't have kept going. Uh, it's it's when you read about Alexander, it makes sense that he he didn't want to. I don't think anything. I mean, he, he goes back to Persia. It takes him forever. That journey back. Uh, where he tries to he tries to map the coastline was just an absolute disaster and completely you know almost destroyed his army ultimately his his greatest foe there was was nature mm-hmm. and the desert but it's i i you know we told the story of how, why he doesn't keep going but i can understand where you you look at it and to some ways porus did defeat him in that he seems to have convinced mm-hmm. his soldiers that they didn't want to go on any farther so yeah, yeah i mean uh, there are 
there are tactical victories that are strategic losses, and, and uh, there are reasons why, especially history that far back, why two different peoples might remember that history a bit differently. Yes, yes. Well, and of course, you know, the only sources we really have are, are Greek. Yeah. And on top of that, most of the, there, there were a lot of really interesting, you know, there were biographies written and histories written at the time that were contemporary, but most of those have been lost. Mm-hmm. And we've we've got them maybe quoted in in later sources yeah. is all, and so there's there's a lot of stuff that uh, we might not remember correctly about Alexander, and I I don't know maybe someday we'll I, I've I've heard that the they're starting to use like laser technology to read uh, some of the papyri that were found in uh, after in Pompeii mm-hmm. uh, that you know were completely buried in the ash, yeah, and so you know maybe we'll find it's amazing that we're still finding <laughs> stuff from the from the ancient world, yeah. and maybe we'll find more lessons there. Yeah, but I mean, yeah. you know, in in reality, we talk about fairly modern history, and there's things that yeah. you know we don't know, or things that are still confusing, or things that don't seem to quite fit. Uh, and so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, imagine then, you know, if you're going back that far, then you're always going to go back three thousand years, five thousand years. You're always going to have that sort of question mark. But I mean, history yeah. still is a story. I mean, it's it still ties together as a story, and Alexander is part of that story. Well, and that's why I mean, partially, you know, the story is as valuable as the, you know, as the actual history, because of course, who Alexander was, uh, is important, but to some extent, who he was to the later people. Who saw it and exploited that and understood that for centuries, for millennia afterwards, that's, that's also part of the history, part of the story. Yeah. And whether that reflects the, you know, the actual Alexander or not is a, is a fair question. Absolutely. It is. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Guy podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Forgotten History, and if you did, you can find more on our website, thehistoryguy.com. We release podcasts every two weeks, so stick around if you want to hear more podcasts of Forgotten History. You can also find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Patreon. You can even get a personalized message from the History Guy himself on Cameo.